Hi, I'm Zach, and welcome to the IB Voices podcast. Given the recent increase in attention around social and emotional learning and education, the IB has published three research papers focused on key interrelated social and emotional learning topics that are closely aligned to the IB's work. Available now on ibo.org research, the first paper is on academic resilience, which is defined as the capacity to overcome different types of adversity that threaten educational progress and success, and is used as a lens to understand how and why some students still reach their goals even in the face of challenging conditions in school and life. On today's episode, I talked with one of the authors of the paper, Dr. Ross Anderson, a principal researcher at Inflection, on why academic resilience is important for students, how it compares to academic buoyancy, and how to support resilience in the classroom. I'm Ross Anderson. My background is multidimensional in a lot of ways. I've been in research in the education field for the past seven years. And before that, I worked at a district in Connecticut designing a lot of after-school and service learning programs and summer programs and community-based opportunities for students, collaborating with a lot of different providers, including arts programs like theater and dance, and focus a lot on the out-of-school time. And then in the last seven years of work in research, really focus much more on policy at the school level, instruction in the classroom, my like targeted area of research is really around creativity. And I think the topic today around academic resilience is really intertwined in some ways with aspects of creative problem solving, kind of the openness and approach that people take in the creative process to look at mistakes as an opportunity rather than as a deficit. But I work now currently at Inflection. It's a nonprofit in Eugene, Oregon, and we do a lot of work with the IB. The topic academic resiliency is really alongside two other topics that we focused on in this project, and that includes growth mindset and metacognition. Additionally, I have an IB student, a ninth grader, and so it's it's been great to work on this project for IB and think about it all the way down, trickling down to you know a school here in Eugene, Oregon that has an IB program, and then my student beginning to integrate into it. So we were talking before we hit record about how the theme of the year is resiliency and how we're all displaying resilience in ways we never really expected. So inflection has always been studying resiliency in schools. That's not just a 2020 thing. Well, not entirely. You know, resiliency as a concept applied in teaching and learning and education is something our organization has been interested in. You know, it's a question of why do some students who face adversity succeed, whereas others don't. And I think that's a question that, you know, the education field has been wrestling with a lot. And as an organization that's founded on interest in policy and the bridge of policy to practice, and how do you really support schools and transformation of the student experience and student empowerment? I think resilience has been one of those ideas that exists in our work. But I think until we began this project, hadn't actually been named. And When I dove into a massive amount of literature across 20 years, research that included this term, this idea of academic resilience, named it. And it's not surprisingly pretty diverse. People define the term differently. So what is your definition? 
So what we narrowed down is a definition that comes from the psychological literature really on resilience, but now puts it in the context of a school. And I'm going to walk through a couple different important considerations when we think about this term. So first off, resilience can be thought of as this just human process of adaptation. We see adversity and we naturally just, our strengths come out and almost like in survival mode, we find the resourcefulness, the self-beliefs to just bounce back and find our strength. And in some ways you can think of resilience as like a recursive cycle. It's a feedback loop. So the more resilient that you are, the more adversity you face, the more strength you get, the more resilient you become. And it sort of can really feed in that. So the people facing the most adversity are likely the most resilient. And when you put this into an academic context, you then sort of think about, well, some students absolutely face more adversity in coming to school, getting through a day of school and what that means, and managing potentially enormous amount of challenges, whether it's at home, in the neighborhood, the circumstances of moving around to follow the work of your parents or what it might be. It's without a doubt on a spectrum. And at the same time, every person going to school faces some level of like small a adversity. So I think of those as like big a adversity. Then there's sort of the setbacks, like, you know, you, you forget to turn a homework assignment and suddenly, you know, your grade has fallen and you're falling behind in other classes and your stress level rises and all these things can kind of happen. And, and those are just normal setbacks in the routine of school. And I think what I loved about the literature we found was that you can think of two different levels of academic resiliency. You can think of the resiliency in facing these massive forms of adversity, and then you can have academic buoyancy, which is really about just bouncing back from setbacks and finding a, a level of composure to the normal circumstances of mistakes and failure and disappointment and being able to grind through that. And, and so one metaphor is like, you know, to bend and not break. Take, for instance, the experience right now in distance learning, a teacher might be using Google to track assignments for one part of the class and then something like Canvas or one of these other learning management systems to track other parts. And you track one of these systems, but as a student, you're in seven classes and you just forget that you have this other set of assignments that you need to turn in. And so suddenly you're way behind. You've got like four assignments that are missing and your grade shows up and it's really low. And so what do you do? This is a pretty big setback. You've now got to dig yourself out. Well, the first thing that happens is anxiety, different nature of anxiety. You've got now dread, this sort of like throbbing dread that might keep you up at night of I'm gonna, never gonna get back into that B to A range that I was so hoping for. And then you also have just like the stimulate, the immediate stimulation of anxiety, of just like fear response. And so in those spaces, nothing good is gonna come out of managing yourself and making decisions from that space. The only way to first make those like take responsibility and assess the situation and kind of fact find is to reduce your experience of anxiety, is to kind of regulate those emotions and actually figure out how to deal with them. So across the strategies that I found and the programs that are out there, emotional regulation is high on the list of strategies. And you know, emotional regulation training or education can look kind of differently depending on the approach. 
One way is to teach knowledge about emotions. So you just actually understand like what the physiological experience is of different emotions, almost like the texture of different emotions, the kind of characteristics, the colors. One program out of the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence called Ruler has a lot of this color coded. And they actually ask students to kind of track where they are emotionally on a plotted kind of X, Y axis. And the Y axis is on level of intensity. So high intensity versus low intensity. And the X axis is on pleasantness to unpleasantness. So if you're in that like high intensity, low, like high unpleasantness, that's kind of where real anxiety, high anxiety will live. Just even beginning to understand and label that is without a doubt, we kind of now have real good empirical evidence that like that can work. And the folks at Ruler and the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence have been documenting some really strong evidence that it can work. Being able to build confidence and self-efficacy. So self-efficacy is this like prospective belief that I can succeed in digging out of this hole I accidentally dug myself into with this list of assignments that I didn't know existed that I'm now late on. How am I going to do it? You know, so it's the confidence is one thing, and that's really important for buoyancy. Being able to coordinate, coordination, but also then communicating that, like, I need to address this with my parents, probably with my teacher. That requires a level of commitment. We've got confidence, we've got coordination, we've got commitment. So like actually really persevering through, I'm going to figure out how to do this. I'm going to dig myself out. I'm going to have the hard conversation with my parents, with my teacher. This was a mistake. I'm going to own it. It's not diagnostic of me as an absolute abject failure. It's normal. And then having the composure to actually sit with this discomfort and move to a level of taking control and building a strategy. And what's cool is that I, you know, we dug into this literature for this study for IB and this concept is relatively new. So the research is now just like beginning to fill in and people are studying this in all different international contexts and levels. So it's a cool new field of research. I think it has a lot of promise. One of the most important strategies to develop buoyancy, which is modeling and Teachers are these models that are day in, day out, working with kids because the teacher is able to actually give students permission to feel like this is a normal experience and give permission to students to embrace struggle and challenge as something actually to be celebrated because it's the opportunity to grow. What we wrote in this paper in terms of recommendations for teachers is just as relevant for parents in the home. What are some of those recommendations? Productive struggle is huge. The process of modeling and messaging is paramount. Teachers, adults, parents need to talk about the struggles that they've experienced. It needs to become something that is part of the mental model that students are carrying around the academic life. Making challenge and struggle normal and not diagnostic of a student's ability or inability or deficit is a huge, huge undertaking. And it does require a lot of consistency. Being mindful with your breath, you know, knowing that physiologically, when you are experiencing anxiety, you're immediately going to become short in your breath. Your nervous system is going to be in high alert. 
And there's really one fundamental way to calm that down and it's just to breathe deep, exhale entirely, all of the breath out. And I think if that can become a routine in a learning environment, because anxiety is always gonna be faced. One of the examples that we brought into this comes from work I've been doing with arts integration. So metaphor is this big, beautiful opportunity in teaching and learning to allow different cultural backgrounds and experiences to come in and, and become part of the way that students are making meaning of what they're learning. And focus in on math anxiety, which the research now shows is way more common than we ever thought. And what we found is when we did uh, this math anxiety monster project, so students started to name and sculpt their monsters out of found objects and put them in these beautiful sculptural like learning environments or, or environments. Uh, and then they would write down on the box all the math skills that they had. So they'd kind of like cage this monster with the representation of their skills, of what they know they can do. Teachers learned what they do in their classroom to actually trigger and stimulate these students' anxieties. And the, the process, we, I think we've had about seven teachers go through this and what they've learned, they've said has changed their pedagogy more than almost anything that they've ever done in teaching. And it was simply just learning from their students what makes them anxious. Simple as that. I may not have math anxieties as a math teacher, but I have these other anxieties and I can talk about them and I can normalize it. It's a huge responsibility. And I think one that is, it goes right alongside social emotional learning. That's modeling. Messaging is really important too because messaging can come through in a whole variety of ways. The difference between fixed mindset and growth mindset type feedback is really simple and it's, it's really consequential. So if you praise ability and praise intelligence, likely setting up students to become less buoyant when they face challenges. Because if they have one moment where they're making a mistake or they are showing some fallibility, then it suddenly calls into question their whole kind of potential. So praising intelligence, praising ability, rather than praising effort, can be really counterintuitive. So praising effort in general is much more important and, and a much better way of messaging the success that students are having. Are you able to give an example of what praising ability sounds like and what praising effort sounds like? Yeah, uh, I mean, how many times as a kid did you hear, you are so smart? And as a parent, I mean, it's, it's indoctrinated us, culturally indoctrinated in us. So as a parent, I, when I learned this research, I started to listen for that in my own voice. So those are, yeah, it's important to recognize the power of words. Um, praising effort can really just look like, wow, you really struggled. And that was a big challenge you faced. Look at, look at the amount of work that you just had to do in 24 hours because, oops, you missed all of these assignments over the course of four weeks. Um, hey, mistakes happen. Um, I'm really proud of, of you for overcoming all those obstacles and, um, and persevering and, and staying up late finishing and um, even when you didn't want to and uh, you took care of yourself, you got rest. You know, praising like the strategy, praising the recognizing and complimenting choices that were made. Um, you know, the more specific feedback is, the better it is. 
And that's another reason why if you just say, oh, well, look how smart, you're so smart, you're so good at math. Oh boy, does that set up, that starts to set up, the pressure just builds, right? Like now I've got to perform. I've, now I have to meet this, this idea that uh, has been imposed upon me um, that is actually to just kind of remove young people further and further from who they are. Yeah, so how can IB schools help to develop resilient students, not just IB schools, schools everywhere? To develop academic resilience in young people is a community effort. Um, and it, it's a community effort because it, it does require a school to take a comprehensive approach. Uh, there's a project called Compassionate Schools Project um, in the US that develops mindfulness practices for students, which of course will help emotional regulation. It'll, it'll help develop their emotional intelligence. Um, and that's right alongside uh, different movement and, and physical fitness and uh, learning about the body and how to take care of the body. So it's, a really, it's really focused on students being able to learn how to take care of themselves really well. And it's also alongside nutrition. And so it's this full kind of, you know, it's a full three-pronged approach to um, helping students kind of recognize that what's happening in their bodies matters. <laughs> like from the emotions to the nutrition to the actual physical movement. Um, and so it's really about overall wellness. You know, when you look at what allows young people to be resilient, there is a, a kind of a holistic approach to it that, you know, you, you can't just teach emotional regulation skills without also looking at these other aspects of their physiology. Um, I think the curricular interventions have a, a lot of promise, like the ruler program that I talked about, or different mindfulness education and mindfulness programs. They have a lot of promise, but the danger is that if you adopt a program without looking at your curriculum and your instructional design, you're going to miss big contradictions potentially. So if we're saying that you know failure is an opportunity and setbacks are, are natural and you're gonna make mistakes, we're all human, it's a natural part of adaptation, but you have these zero tolerance policies around late work or you know, or you or you you know, high stakes tests. I mean, you're just kind of contradicting these two messages. Um, so I think that's really important. And the other piece that I think is really important is uh, how do you care for your teachers? So in a system like IB, or in a large school district, or even down to small schools, what is happening to ensure that teachers are able to do their own emotional regulation, stress reduction? and overall you know wellness kind of checks on a personal level to be really ready to develop resiliency in their students modeling is super important um, but also <laughs> knowing how to recognize if you're in a stress state you're going to overreact you're going to overreact and it's going to cause harm especially if you have kids who are already living with trauma and bringing trauma into their lives um, and we kind of systematically add more onto teachers' backs every year. Um, and right now, in, in our context in the U.S., teachers are leaving the profession at higher rates than ever before. Less teachers are coming into the profession than ever before. Uh, their levels of disengagement are higher than 
than previously tracked. And so it's a it's an alarming situation. Um, and I think you know the the work of school leaders and a, a, a large system like IB to support this for teachers, you know, it's going to have a trickle down effect. Um, so that's a big one. Um, so IB is working in a lot of different cultural contexts. And any of these programs or approaches do require a whole cultural adaptation process. Um, and that's a that's just kind of a, a, a really important step. And it's one that uh, there are some ways that people have done this. So making sure that if you're going to bring in a program around uh, emotional regulation and managing anxiety and dealing with stress, that the examples that are brought in are contextualized for that cultural context and and are relevant and um, the kinds of strategies that are that are shared and brought um, really resonate in that cultural setting. And so for for schools and and programs like IB who are working in a Western context like the US or Europe, um, thinking about who who are the models that are really going to reach the kids who are most marginalized. Um, that's a pretty big undertaking and uh, an important step. Um, this feels really important, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I'm hearing, it sounds like adversity isn't the only thing that can build resilience. Having these positive role models, positive experiences, courage, the seas, those also build resilience. Yes, absolutely. You know, having role models who are like, hey, and, and, and this is from the, my STEM story project. There's a, 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 a several young women who you know are at the intersection of gender inequality in science and gender stereotype and racial minority stereotype. Big challenges there because over and over again, you're going to face these lower expectations. We had one, one female student, um, a female black student, who said, you know, I had... I've had multiple people tell me I should go into something easier. You know, love science, totally passionate about it. I was told I should go into something easier but on multiple occasions. And, you know, you, you don't have to tell that to young people too many times before they start to believe that story. Uh, and, and, and so being able to have that story told, brought in a video to or in person to, uh, you know, people who are at that cusp and say like ninth or 10th grade, Here's a student who's made it. They're in undergrad program. They're they're thriving, um, and be able to have that story shared is a really important opportunity. Um, so identity-based motivation is a whole other kind of uh, important lens onto how how resiliency and, and buoyancy can build and sustain. Um, and I think for really culturally diverse, racially diverse, ethnically diverse classrooms. Um, it's a process of just creating space for these to exist and to come out and to 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 be to be shared. And I think there is a lot of empathy that that adults can can learn to really understand that like what seems like a small setback, you know, can be a monumental, can feel like a monumental disaster to young people. And it's really important for the students to express that 
and feel it and then learn that over time that it's totally normal and we all experience that and and you're going to have another shot. So what's the one thing that teachers who are listening to this, what's the first thing they can do to try to address this anxiety? I mean, obviously, <laughs> it's not easy, but where do they start? That's a great question. Um, I would say, you know, classroom routines and rituals build the culture of the classroom. So here are some recommendations. Uh, I mean, I'm not a teacher in a classroom, so I share this with that big fat caveat. Um, but I've been watching now a lot of teachers and studying a lot of teachers developing and adapting different routines to, to really try to find like what brings out the culture that they're looking for in their learning environment. So let's think about some rituals and routines that you could bring in to just like cultivate this space for buoyancy and, and resiliency to, to grow and thrive. Uh, one would just be, you know, let's start off every day with some deep breath exercises. Take two minutes. And it, you know, that's a that's significant. You're gonna you're gonna slow down everything that's happening in the students' bodies. You're gonna bring calm, relaxation. I mean, it's a it's a natural physiological process and it's a really good training to bring in on a regular basis. So some deep breath exercises before you're going to take a test, before students are going to take a test. Um, deep breath exercises, even letting students who might feel, who might have more test anxiety than others. Most do have test anxiety in general. Um, some un Most people underperform because of anxiety. So create a space for five minutes for them to write down what's bothering them. What are they scared of? What's What are they feeling? Um, just expressive writing. Um, when you, when as a teacher, if I am going to assign something that I know is going to stimulate, you know, uh, some panic. So what do kids in general, what, what creates panic for kids? Um, a lot of kids have panic and anxiety around math, a lot, and writing. So big writing assignments. So suddenly there's, oh my God, there's 10 pages I have to write. I have a month. I'm never going to do it. I'm never going to be able to do it. I'm just, I, I'm so afraid of even starting one sentence. Um, Presenting in front of peers, oral presentation, big time anxiety. So when these are natural things that you're going to assign that people are going to, and, and the more that students do, the more they will see that they are capable. If there's anything that brings anxiety. So first off, learning what actually anxiety students, students are bringing. So normalizing that anxiety is real. And that can start with like an autobiographical story. I mean, this is stuff you can do in the first two weeks of, of school and just learn what's the landscape of kind of emotional stimuli and emotional regulation in, in, in my class. So creating a, an opportunity to have that dialogue, to share strategies, and to identify if and when you assign something that you know is going to maybe be an anxiety-producing assignment or task, starting off, you know, what scares people in this assignment? What are people feeling? Like actually asking, what do you feel? What do you feel? Mark Brackett, Dr. Mark Brackett, who was one of the originators of the ruler program at the Center for Emotional Intelligence, wrote a book called Permission to Feel. I mean, it's really like, we do not give this in our culture. We do not give permission to feel. So let's give permission to feel. Let's make that a regular conversation. I'll cross an assignment like an oral presentation. How are people doing? How, you know, what's, what are you afraid? <laughs> what are you still afraid of? Or what are you, what's causing anxiety? How are you gonna deal with it? Um, 
you know, peer support, making it, making it a shared experience. Um, and the more that a, an adult steps up to be vulnerable, the more kids are going to, are going to follow. And, and my good, like the tightness of relationships, one of the most important things in all of this research was like school climate around relationships, trusting relationships, caring relationships. If that exists, you know, it's, it's one of the biggest protective factors for kids, regardless of how much trauma they're facing, that they have it at home and that they have it in school. And a lot of students don't have it at home. At home. So it's got to be there, trusting, caring relationships, um, showing students every day that they matter, that they're seen, that they're known. Um, and it is absolutely paramount that the teacher reduces their, the, the supposed authority that they have you know, that that they are, in, that there's some kind of, you know, this authoritative sort of presence, just reduce that, you know, create more autonomy for kids, but also at the same time, be real, just show up and be real, be, be somebody who's facilitating the process of learning and building resiliency rather than dictating it. Um, the controlling environments that we have all gone through um, and that unfortunately do persist, they are probably one of the most harmful things to building resiliency. So, I mean, it's, this is humbling work, you know, being a teacher is humbling work. I mean, I, I, I really respect um, what teachers do so much. And I think showing and being real and being human and showing the, all the frailty that we all carry and the, and the, the wounds and <laughs> our own trauma and our own anxieties, you know, it is what develops relationships and, and intimacy that, um, that kids need. And that's all they're looking for really. Um, and it's a commitment that I think has, um, may seem really intimidating. Um, this isn't about creating a therapy, group therapy, where, you know, teachers aren't therapists, they're not trained therapists, it's not expected. It's why like bring, letting students talk about trauma is really sensitive and scary, and I get that. Um, and so, you know, this is where just educate around how do we talk about these things? How do you create safe spaces and, and make, these environments healing centered um, and just getting to know your kids is, is the first step. So focusing in on those routines and those rituals. And, you know, it's interesting to just think about all the rituals we have in our days, all the routines that we have. And if you do a little bit of an audit of like, well, what do I, how do I welcome my kids to the classroom? How do I, how do I, you know, make an assignment? Um, do I let students, come up with some of the criteria for success around a project? Do I, you know, what are the things that are routine and ritual and how much of them have the potential to develop students' resilience based on what we know? So I encourage people to dive into this, into this paper. It's uh, built and designed and written for practitioners. It's got recommendations. It's got a bunch of practical examples. Um, and um, I can't wait to see also what comes next for IB around this work. I think it was a, it was a new area of research to, to pursue and, um, and the results seem really promising. And as an IB parent, um, I think it's just a, IB is so well set up to be a leader around what does it really mean to develop resilient students? And it's gonna be inspiring to watch. Thank you so much, Ross, for your time and expertise. If you'd like to read more, check out Academic Buoyancy and Resilience for diverse students around the world at ibo.org research. 
Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to IP Voices so you can hear the interviews with the authors of our other research papers. Okay, listeners, be safe, be well, and we'll be back soon with more stories from our students, schools, educators, and more.